So when I think of uh, some of the biggest technological advances in, the his, in modern history, a uh, few things come to mind right away, like the, um, the printing press or a combustible engine, personal computer, the internet. Uh, it's 15 years since the first iPhone came out, which is amazing. It's a long time. 15, yes, we are, yeah, maybe we're getting old. But one thing that's really interesting is a number of sociologists will say one of the biggest technological creations or inventions in the modern era that changed everything in the way that we interact with one another was one that I, I wouldn't expect, one that caught me by surprise. And it's the refrigerator. The personal fridge, being able to, to cool your food for long periods of time is one of the most significant technological inventions of the modern era. For the longest time, people were only able to hold you know, one or two days worth of fresh food. And after that, they would have to now leave their house and go down to wherever it was that the people would be, down to the market, down to the, to the center of trade where the hustle and bustle would be happening, where there would be interaction with community. So with the invention of personal refrigeration, it actually allowed people to stay in their homes for days at a time. And then the deep freezer where days could become weeks and even months. And I don't know how many of you have multiple uh, fridges or freezers in your home. We, we just got a second fridge. I'm not super proud of it, but we have, a, we have an extra fridge plus a deep freezer, everything. So you're good for a long extended period of time. And after the creation of um, uh, individual personal refrigeration, design, the design of uh, suburbs became more prominent where people could go get to their homes, pull right into their driveway, close the door, and not have to see or look at anybody. So you could live in a neighborhood, like le legitimately, you could live in a neighborhood for decades and never have any kind of interaction with somebody who lives next to you. This idea of neighbors has changed because we've been able to somehow isolate ourselves, um, become more insular. Even though we live in these uh, metropolitan areas, some of us, where there's people everywhere, we can live our whole lives and be completely alone. It, it reinforces this idea in our society of uh, radical independence, that somehow we, we've been sold a bill of goods that says, if I've made it by myself, then I'm somehow successful, right? Like, if, if, I've, if, I, if I've made it and I didn't have to ask anybody for help, then, I'm, then I've really made it, right? I'm successful. Where, where asking for help is actually seen as a sign of weakness, where because I needed to admit that I didn't have everything together, then somehow I'm less, somehow I'm not all that I need to be. We put privacy over our purpose. Uh, we put selfishness over sacrifice. And the way that we live is designed to separate and isolate us from other people. Like life is, it's a byproduct of the way that we've, we've designed things. So we think about techn technological advancements, we think of the benefit, but we don't often count the cost, right? What does it cost us to have uh, the things that we have? And maybe uh, that there are some ancient ways, there are some old ways that we've rushed past at the, for the sake of expediency, for the, for the sake of efficiency, that maybe we need to be revisiting again. Uh, last week, we had uh, Samuel on talking about peace and nonviolence. 
And it's about a year ago now, uh, Samuel and I were able to go up north to uh, part of a learning tour uh, in Timmins and a few other places in northern Canada, northern Ontario, to visit our indigenous neighbors and learn from them some of their, their ancient ways, some of their old ways. And one of the things that I found really fascinating, really interesting, it seemed like a small thing at first, but then I started to think about it more and more. But one of the old ancient ways is that their entire culture, the way that they interact with one another is all oral. It's all verbal. They don't write anything down. They don't write their stories down. They don't, it's, it's all uh, the spoken word. <coughs> I thought, well, that's not really good for efficiency. Like what happens if, if the story changes a little bit or something is left out or you forget? So like, it, it's better to write it down, right? So you've got it and you know, okay, it's, it's saved for posterity's sake. But what I, what I came to learn was that there's actually something beautiful about being able to tell and retell the story. A storyteller, you get, you get an idea of what's being said. You get the inflections, you get the pauses, you get the humor, you get the, all of those things that help you understand what's being communicated. It requires proximity. It requires a closeness. It requires a considerable amount of time in each other's space to sit and to listen and to understand. And I, and I think that our, uh, these past generations, these ancient ways actually have, we've missed out on some of the things that they have to teach us. There's something, there's something that happens between the speaker and the hearer. There's something that's uh, emphasizing the connection between individuals. And I asked myself the question as I heard these stories being told and retold over and over again, what if there's, there's something more important um, than efficiency? What if connection actually is something that we should need to be paying close attention to on how we engage with one another? And for, for centuries, as the start of the early church, this is the way that people would communicate when learning about scripture. Tradition would go from elder to youth, from teacher to student, and all orally, verbally, in order to create closeness, in order to create proximity. Now, our tradition holds to this idea in scripture uh, about community and it being paramount, it being so important. And we see it in a, in a, a we call it the Trinity. It's, a, it's an interesting expression, an inter interesting idea that's not referenced in scripture by name, but, but we hold it. Our, our, our Christian tradition holds this to be true. This idea of God being one, but then also being in three persons, strangely. And one of the ways that um, has been, I've heard a number of people try and explain what it is and how it works, but, but this is God himself in proximity and close community with himself. So one way to look at it, we know the passage, First uh, John chapter four, verse eight, says simply that God is love. Not that God is loving, or God loves loves people, or he's he's got a big heart, which are, it's true. He loves people and he's loving, but at at God's very essence, God is love. Richard Swinburne uh, breaks it down this way. He's a theologian and. Uh, of uh, philosophy and religion at Oxford University. And his logic of the Trinity goes like this. He says, if God is love, 
then God must be innately relational. That is, he, may be, he, he needs to be at least two or more before he creates anything else. There's got to be at least two somehow. But when love is best expressed face-to-face that requires two, that it's even better if it's now shoulder-to-shoulder, where love is now observing something else. So think of, of a relationship of two people and now observing something like a child or a piece of art or enjoying a piece of music or something. There, there needs to be something else for that love to happen. So for love to really be at its fullest expression, love needs to be at least three. To add four doesn't add anything. To add five, it doesn't make it any more, um, uh, any more robust or anything. It, just, it makes it actually redundant. So at least three, for love to be fully expressed, it needs to be three. Stanley Grantz says this about the nature of the Trinity and God being three and one, uh, three and one. That God's triune nature means that God is social and relational at his very core. God is the social Trinity. And for this reason, we can say that God is community. God is the community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has always enjoyed perfect and eternal fellowship. Because within within this Trinity, we see fellowship, we see dependence, we see honor, submission, mutual dwelling, and authentic community at its fullest form. We see true love on display within God. He goes on to say this, which I love, community is deeply grounded in the very nature of God. It flows from who God is because he is community. He creates community. It is his gift of himself to humans. Therefore, the making of community may not be regarded as optional for Christians. It is an actual compelling and irrevocable necessity, a binding divine mandate for all believers at all times. It is possible for humans to reject or alter God's commission for them to build community and, and to be in community, but this may happen only at the cost of forsaking the creator of community and be betraying his image in us. The cost is enormous. Since his image is in us, it is the essential attribute that defines our humanity. There's an, an old African proverb that says, uh, a person is a person through another person that what makes me someone is the fact that I have interaction or I'm connected with someone else. It's an interesting idea that uh, um, this, this person is a person that I am because, because we are. When we look in the first couple chapters of Genesis, we see the creation story and God saying, uh, you know, God creating, speaking and creating, speaking and creating. And after every day he says, oh, and it was good and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then while everything is still good, he makes man and then looks down and says, yes, it was good, and then says it was not good. Not good for him to be alone. So before there was sin, before there was corruption, anything else, God recognized and made the point to say, no, 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 we need to be in community with one another. I was, I was challenged a number of years ago. Um, a, uh, one of my mentors who, uh, who, who speaks and does a lot of work in uh, inner city uh, areas across Toronto. And he asked the question point blank to a, a church full of people. 
said, by show of hands, I won't ask here, by show of hands, who would rather go to the movie, would you rather go to the movies or join a gang? So, oh, those aren't the two usual, I would say like, okay, do you want to join, you want to go to the movies or go to dinner is what I might expect, or do you want to go to the movies or, but do you want to join, do you want to go to the movies or do you want to join a gang? And then, so, so it left people a little puzzled. Then he continued to, to break it down and said, for a, a lot of us, uh, when we experience church, we experience it a lot like we're going to the movies. We get into a theater, lights are low, comfortable seats. We get nice and cozy and comfortable. The lights go down, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the audience and the lights come up on stage and there we get inspired. We might laugh. We might, we might get to a point where we shed a tear. The sound system is really, you know, it's really good and it's like crescendoing everything else. You may or may not know the person sitting to your left or to your right. And then you, 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 you feel good and then you, you eventually get up and leave and go about your business. And you might think in the parking lot, wow, that was really, that was a good, that was really great. That really touched me. You might share, oh, you know what, this, it was great. But then you get back to your normal life and then it's all fine. That if, if your only experience of church is like it is, like it is you're going to the movies, you're missing out on something foundational and amazing that God is trying to offer. The movies are great. It's one of the hardest things for me during the pandemic was not being able to go to a movie theater. And I might have gone to the movies maybe a little sooner than I should have, considering COVID was still, but but movies are amazing. They're great. But the point is, is that if that's your only expression of community, there's, there's so much that you're missing out on. The joining a gang piece ties into a, a story another pastor friend shared where there was a young man who came out of, the, came out of a gang and was uh, transformed by his relationship with Jesus. Came in, decided right away, I want to get baptized. Baptize me, you know, pastor, I just want to be baptized, change my life. But very soon after his baptism, he was um, disenchanted with the whole idea and stopped showing up, stopped coming out. Finally, uh, his pastor reached out to him a little ways later and said, hey, like, what happened? Where did you go? And he says, oh, yeah. You know, I, I just, I, I thought it was going to be something different. Say, when I got jumped into the gang, uh, that was actually my family. That was my life. We did everything together. We lived, we did all kinds of crazy things. But with that, that, this was, this was our, our crew. Like, we... We lived together. And then when I came to the church, I got baptized and then I didn't realize that it was just a few songs on Sunday and you, you, you listen to somebody talk at the front and then you go and everybody goes their separate ways. I, I, thought, I thought that it was going to be so much more. I've, I've shared uh, a few times of the work that I used to do in uh, detention centers with young men. And, and as I was um, still kind of just working out my, my faith and what what the church is and where it is and how it works and everything else. I was amazed by some of the conversations that I would have with young men that were teaching me what koinonia is. That's the, the Greek word for fellowship. What it is to be willing to lay your life down for your brother or your sister. Talking that in a real way. And I was like, man, I, I learned so much more from some of those conversations and being and then out in the community and seeing how things work from, from people who are involved in criminal activity <laughs> as their vocation, 
than I did in the actual church. I thought, what is it? What is it that I'm missing? What is it that I'm that I'm not getting? What is it? What's the invitation that, that is that's falling short? And we've got to fight hard against the design of isolation, of this idea of radical independence that, well, I don't need anyone else. I don't need to depend on anybody else. But we've seen this in, um, in our church. One of the things that we talk often about is, is home church as being an opportunity to, to have that. That's an option for sure. It's not the only, the only way, but an opportunity for us to do more than just, just sit and be inspired and to listen, but to actually share life with one another. I've I, uh, been inspired by a group, maybe you, you've heard of them, called the, the Clapham Sect. It's a, a group of people from the 1800s in England. So they were all people who were in different uh, vocations, different, uh, different walks of life, but lived in a similar area and cared deeply for each other, wanted deeply, you know, passionately to follow Jesus. And their proximity, their time together outside of Sunday mornings of just being in one another's space ended up starting all kinds of incredible social uh, reformations in England where they worked hard at uh, prison reform, where it was just them talking around, like, how do we be more, more like Jesus in our community? This wasn't a formal group that they, you know, had to sign up for, or it was like, but it was just a group of men that were passionate about following Jesus and, and having the kingdom be represented where they lived. What does it look like for us to be more like Jesus? And then things like, uh, well, you know, I, I work, I work as, uh, as a magistrate, or I'm, I'm, in, uh, I'm in the government, maybe there's a way that I can adjust things and this prison reform is a real issue here or education reform or these social justice initiatives. They started to come and, and, and be birthed out of just people being in proximity with one another, being in, prox- uh, in, in close community. A guy named uh, Wilberforce, maybe you've heard of him. He's a guy who's, who's prominent, who's known for the abolitionist, uh, abolition of, of slavery and coming from this community of people who are looking around and saying, what does it mean for us to be an unstoppable cause for good where we live? Now the challenge with this is that we have to be somewhat careful is that we can, we can run into community just for community's sake. Like because we know it's something that we want to do, we can, actually, we can actually spoil it a bit. There's this great quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, he says this, the person who loves their dream of community will actually destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. And let him who is not in community be beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. <clears throat> So the question for us, I would say the question for, for each of us is how we are going to do, is, is not how we're going to do this. How do we actually organize in a way that we can, we can be experiencing community? But a better question, I think, is are we ready to let the one who we call father lead us to deeper relationship, 
with the ones that he calls his own. Community for, for its own sake is, can be problematic or create all kinds of challenges. But what does it look like if we see the people that are around us and say, I'm, I'm willing and, and wanting to love you in a real way, the way that God loves me and that, that I know that he loves each of us? Are we ready to let the one we call Father lead us deeper into relationships with the ones that he calls his own? And you don't have to force it. When it's happening, as we're close together, you'll know that it's happening. There's a few, few uh, tail signs that, you know, indicators, uh, fruits that come up, byproducts of us being uh, together. There's a few that I'll mention here. The first one is, is confession. That one real genuine community that's fueled by the Holy Spirit and, and actually holding a place where Jesus is living in our place. There's a freedom and a trust where we can be honest and open with one another. In the book of Galatians, Paul says that we are to, to, to carry one another's burdens. That we hold our own, we take responsibility for our, thing, for our, for our own selves, but by being close in proximity, actually we are able to share our hard things with one another. That's a byproduct. It reminds me of my, my math equation that I'm, people, people who know me know, know that I say it often. I'm not a math person at all. We'll sort of we'll put that to rest. I, I, I'm terrible with math. But the one equation, this one kind of mathematical equation, this idea of, of sharing, that a burden shared somehow is divided. That a burden shared just becomes a little less, a little lighter. But that a joy shared is multiplied. When we share a joy, it just somehow gets a little bit better. So confession is there. Confession is a byproduct. James says that when we confess our sins one to another, that we will be healed. Yeah, not saved healed. That as we, we trust one another, we trust the spirit is there. Um, we can, we can experience healing. Another byproduct when you know that community is happening is forgiveness. The closer that we get to one another, the risk is, is that we actually increase the chances of us harming one another. We tend to be hurt most by the people that are closest to us, right? Because we, they're close, right? They're in closer proximity. So when, when a Jesus-centered kind of community is being formed, you know that the fruit of the Spirit will be at work and that people will find enough humility to admit when they've done wrong. I'm sorry. Because... And on the other side, that there's a courageousness that happens that's bold enough for people to actually forgive people when they've done wrong. And the last piece is generosity. You can give, all of us have the ability to give, but not love, right? You can give some, something to someone and not 
have love for them. But it's impossible to love someone and not give. If you love someone truly, your, your inclination now is to be generous towards them, to give them. So my prayer uh, for us, um, for anybody who's wanting to follow Jesus truly, really, know that we cannot do this on our own. The Christian walk, the Jesus-centered faith is not an isolated personal, like straight, just up. It's best and most beautifully expressed when we get to do it shoulder to shoulder. Not in isolation, not by ourselves. So my, my, my challenge, not just from me to you, but for me as well, is that we could be a people that are bold enough to say, I'm wanting to, to be in proximity, to fight against a system that calls for radical individualism, me, my, me, myself, and I, and say, no, let's engage shoulder to shoulder while we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit and know that Jesus is with us in that process. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the unbelievably generous generous invitation to join you in the community that you exist and that you have the love, the submission, the joy. It's almost a dance that you say, come, be a part of that. So God, give us the, uh, give us the courage to say yes to that invitation and that we might be able to see one another as uh, dance partners in a sense. Bless us, we pray in your name, amen.